The Chernobyl nuclear explosion likely blew it off the nation's front pages, which is why the writer Susan Orlean in New York didn't even hear about the great Los Angeles Central Library fire of April 1986 until after she had moved to L.A. It was the biggest fire in the city's history and the biggest library fire in the nation. 400,000 books were transmuted into smoke. Thousands more were scorched by fire or sodden by firefighters' water. For years, the glamorous, overstuffed, underfunded Central Library had come just about this close to meeting the wrecking ball. There were warnings that you couldn't have designed a better fire trap. Sure enough, the flames burned for nearly eight hours, burned so preternaturally hot that in places they were colorless. But the fire somehow provoked Los Angeles into a new civic spirit, and the downtown library, the place where Ray Bradbury and John Fonte and Charles Bukowski met their muses, made a Hollywood comeback. All of this nudged Orlean to write the library book about the library fire, how it started, how it ended, and in an age when we can carry a virtual library in our pockets, why we still carry the real ones so deeply in our spirits. You were a newcomer to Los Angeles when you heard years later about the big library fire in 1986, and it prompted you to do this deep dive in your book into the nature of libraries as a civic, as a public institution. I was toying with the idea of writing about a library without having anything further in terms of a focus. I was being given a tour of the downtown branch, which just on its own merits, it's so beautiful that I was completely smitten instantly. But it was during that visit that I first heard about the fire, and I was absolutely fascinated. So being as compelled by the idea of writing about libraries in general, and now suddenly having this story that had at its heart such a, a mystery, I found myself immediately diving in on all aspects, on the history of libraries and the history of the L.A. library and the story of fire on the history of burning books. This book is many things. It is a love story for people who love libraries, starting with the librarians and then the patrons. It is a history. It goes into the history of libraries around the world, their evolution as civic and public institutions as opposed to private scholarly resources. And it is also that mystery. Who started the fire that consumed the Los Angeles Public Library? And you look at the man named Harry Peake, the principal suspect. Harry Peake, in many ways, is a kind of iconic Los Angeles figure. He was a young man who grew up near Riverside, was the handsomest kid in his class. He was a charmer, and he also was a dreamer, somebody who imagined himself very much as somebody who was going to be a big star someday. He had no training. There was nothing necessarily to suggest that he had any talent for being an actor, but he was someone who wanted to be part of whatever was dramatic and glamorous. And I think Los Angeles is filled with people like Harry Pete. 
One of the words that someone used was the word fabulous, that he would make up the most astounding stories, that he had just had cocktails with Cher, that he had a bit part in this soap opera or in this film, even though you found absolutely no records of that. But then he started telling stories about the fire at the Central Library, and this was nearly his undoing. I honestly wonder whether it ever occurred to him that telling tales about a crime, and this was a significant crime, a fire that destroyed 400,000 books and damaged 700,000 more, that that wasn't the best glamorous lie to tell. I mean, it's one thing to say that you had drinks with Cher, but it's harmless. In the case of boasting that you've committed a crime, you're entering a whole other world. You aren't really processing the fact that this could get you in very big trouble. And it did. He boasted about the fire to a number of friends to, he eventually said it to arson investigators. And it's as if it didn't really register for him that this was a foolish thing to do because eventually someone's going to start taking you seriously. And he was interrogated. He was arrested. He was released. The city filed a civil suit against him. He filed a civil suit against the city. This all ended up going nowhere. Harry Peake died, and the case of arson in the Central Library fire remains technically unsolved to this day. Is that right? Yes, that's right. To the great frustration of really everybody involved, a number of firefighters believe that Harry did it and that they never got justice. None of us, no one in the public, has any real sense of closure of thinking, all right, we now understand who did it and maybe even why. I'm afraid that we're never going to be able to solve this at this point. In 1933, Los Angeles was the fifth biggest city in the country, but it had the most books in circulation. People loved the libraries, and yet by the time the library fire had started, there were questions of tearing down the old library. The city had not put money in to update. It was a fire hazard. It was a human hazard. And it was not uh, very popular with the people who worked there, let alone the people who used it. In the beginning, the building was admired, and it drew enormous and it was a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of architecture. And over time, with money always being tight and overuse of the library, it began to deteriorate. Unfortunately, its deterioration corresponded also with the deterioration of downtown. There were some people who felt there, there was no need for a library downtown at all, let alone restoring this one or perhaps replacing it, but rather tear it down, sell the land, and just have branch libraries. It was more than 20 years of debate about what to do with the building. And against this backdrop came the fire and then the community support for saving the library, for recreating 
the library, which seems as important as the fire itself and the giving L.A. a sense of itself. There was very much a feeling that a city that was sophisticated and intellectual and grown up would have its own library and would have a library building. And the campaigns to raise, rather to pass the bond measures to fund a library building were always put in terms of this sense of identity. It was really not promoted as we need these books. It was we need a library in order to be taken seriously as a big city. So it always was deeply enmeshed in the city's sense of itself. Had we torn down Central Library in the early 80s when it was really on the very brink of happening, I think it would be something we would be talking about still, about the loss of a historic building that is really iconic, that is right in the very heart of downtown and provides the center of downtown with this public space that's very special and very distinctive. I think we would look at it the way New Yorkers look at the destruction of Penn, the original Penn Station. I don't know that we would have ever gotten over it. You spend a lot of time in one chapter writing about the burning of libraries as acts of war, as acts of degradation of culture. Most notoriously, of course, the Nazis burned books. And there's the famous quote that you cited that where one begins, where one burns books, in the end, one burns men as well. Books have become kind of a a surrogate in warfare and cultural wars. It's a fundamental piece of a kind of psychological warfare before the printing press. If you destroyed a book, there was a chance that it would never be seen again. We no longer have that as a consideration. We can create multiple copies of books. They, and now, of course, no book is ever lost because we have it in an electronic form as well. But symbolically, it's still a statement of erasure, a statement of terrorism. I mean, it's interesting that we still find that books are so meaningful and so soulful that the destruction of them feels deeply disturbing and deeply and fundamentally terrifying. For purposes of this book, you did something that I don't know that I could bring myself to do, which is you burned a book. It was not easy. As much as I had written about burning books and understood how symbolically potent it is, I thought, look, I'd go to a bookstore, buy a book, burn it, and I can go get another one immediately. I'm not making a statement about a culture, and yet I still found it absolutely (laughs) distressing and difficult and profoundly uncomfortable. What book was it? I ended up burning Fahrenheit 451. It was a book that really highlighted the brutality of destroying books, the horror that it evoked in us. And I think that he would have approved. 
You take us through the fire, through the effort to save the books, to raise the money, to repair the library. And by the time it reopened, the nature of libraries, public libraries, was really shifting. The libraries were about to enter the internet age. They were about to enter the homeless age. How did Angelinos feel about the new library and their commitment to it? And how did this new service of a library, service functions of a library, get manifested to this day? I think that the people of Los Angeles really have embraced the library. When the library reopened 25 years ago, it was really an emotional, celebratory moment for people in Los Angeles. We've been very lucky in the city because we've had people running the library who were really forward-thinking and saw the future of libraries and saw that their goal, their mission would be diversify. And it wasn't only going to be, oh, you go there and you get a book, but you go there for a whole range of services. So there's a shift away from books just as a book and a broadening to the idea that the library is the information center of the city. And we've done it really well in LA. At the same time, I think libraries remain physical places and that there's something important about it, if for only the reason that it's a place to go to be around other people and to share space with other people and a place where no money exchanges hands. It's not the same as going to Starbucks. It's different. It's a public space. It's like going to a park rather than to a a country club. You are joining the community, and I think that's really important. Even as libraries become more popular for a variety of reasons for their patrons, they've also begun to share and have for actually quite a long time the homelessness problem in Los Angeles. I would say there's not a library that doesn't grapple with this as an issue. They are places that are open to the public And in theory, you can show up at 10 a.m. and sit in the library all day long and stay warm and dry and use the bathroom. And you don't have to buy anything. You don't have to pay anything. So libraries just, by definition, have become one of the frontline receivers of homeless people. I think libraries and librarians around the country have been remarkable. I really admire the the openness and effort and commitment and ingenuity that librarians and city librarians in particular, the people who are making policy, you know, they've really accepted it as this is an issue that we're not going to try to get rid of it. We're going to try to make the library usable for both the homeless population, and for people who are not homeless, who have some level of discomfort, whether it's hygiene issues or behavior issues with homeless people. So they're doing something that is probably one of the modern world's greatest challenges, which is to accept and try to be helpful to and sensitive to the homeless population. 
Did anything you write in this book change your thinking about libraries? I think it made me love them more, (laughs) if that was possible. I honestly came away feeling that they are amazing models of what a community can be at its very best. I think when you dig deep into any subject, you open yourself to the possibility of being disappointed or having your illusions shattered. And actually, my experience was kind of the opposite. I came away feeling really moved by the dedication, the enthusiasm, and and the, the real value of these places and the people who work in them. I don't know if this is, in fact, a change as a result of the work you did on the book, but I'm hearing you talk about Los Angeles and Angelinos as we. You may be hearing me in one of my very first moments of actually sort of identifying myself as an Angelino, and I still consider myself something of a newcomer. I've been here for, I guess this is the start of my seventh year, And I spend about a third of every year or a quarter of every year still on the East Coast. But it's starting to feel like this is home. Well, home is where the books are. There's a special place I know when I've got a special need. Susan Orlean, thank you for talking to me. It's a place I always go when I want a book to read. Going to the La La Library. Pat Morrison asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music is Jimmy Buffett's Love in the Library on Margaritaville Records and the library song from the program Sesame Street. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. Good time.